podcast contains mature content listener discretion is advised i'm mike morford and i've been researching the zodiac case for years zodiac just the name it sounds sinister it inspires fear the fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing he would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years and the attacks they were something else altogether If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished. But he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Aftermath. I'm Kevin. I'll be your host today, and I am so excited because I am joined by a friend of mine who has been around from pretty much the beginning as well since I started this podcast. I can't be more thankful for her. Please give a warm welcome to Jules from Riddle Me That and The Path Went Chilly. Jules, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm good, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. You've also been such a great friend who I'm really thankful for. So thank you for having me on the show, and I'm really excited to talk about this case with you. Absolutely. 100%. I felt like this was a a good case to have you on for. I've I've been on on your show, and, and uh, so for those of you who haven't listened, Go check it out. We talked about the Zeb Quinn murder, uh, which was a horrendous story in itself. But where can they find your show? How can they get in contact with you and all that good stuff? Okay, so I've got two shows. I've got Riddle Me That True Crime, where it focuses on unsolved murders, disappearances. And you can find me on Twitter at Podcast Riddle. And I also have another show with Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold and criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman. And it's called The Path Went Chilly. And so it's basically an offshoot of The Trail Went Cold, where we discuss Robin's favorite cases and go really, really in-depth. And you can find us on Twitter at PathWent. And you can find the podcast on basically every single platform, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And right on. So is there anything you're working on right now that you're excited about or anything that upcoming episodes that, you know, entice the listeners to come and listen? Okay, I'm so excited. So I'm working on a third podcast with Robin from We Saw the Devil. So she used to have like this OG horror podcast, like basically like one of the first ones. I think this was in 2013. Like I didn't even know what a podcast was in 2013. (laughs) (laughs) And she was out there like, you know, interviewing directors like James Wan and all these big time people in the horror industry. And she just eventually, I guess, got tired of it. And the two of us have bonded over our love of horror. And so we decided like, let's do a horror podcast because we both have a lot to say. 
and we've just started recording. It probably won't be out till the winter time because we want to have a bunch of episodes finished before we release, but I really can't wait till it comes out. So we decided on the name, which even though some people thought it sounded kind of pornographic, but was still funny. So we come at night and that's based on the movie. It comes at night. And so I asked so many friends. Yeah, and I asked so many friends in podcasting, and everybody voted for that one. I think there was only one person that was like, eh, "I don't know," but everyone else was like, "Yeah, that's the title." That that's amazing because I I can definitely definitely relate to a, a horror podcast because I myself I love horror, and but also the uh, because I'm a ch- I'm a grown man child that I love the title. We come at night. Like, how can you <laughs> not? you know, hear that and then just laugh and want to listen, right? Yeah. And you're one of the people that I asked, right? I'm like, okay, well, Kevin's one of my go-to people who like when I need advice or, you know, I want to ask an opinion, I'll ask Kevin. So I'm like, what do you think about this title? And <laughs> <laughs> I was busting up laughing when you texted me and you're like, hey, you should, uh, what do you think about this? And I was, I was dying laughing because I was like, we come at night. It I, it comes at night. I like it's it's perfect. It's fucking it's it's perfect. Yeah, I couldn't think of a better title. Like I literally was brainstorming at five thirty in the morning, and I I sent Robin like this entire list of names, and I really couldn't have told you at that time what was good, and it just kind of organically happened. She's like, "We come at night. Are you serious? I love that." And then I'm like, "Well, what do I tell my parents?" And then I'm like. Do my parents ever really listen to my podcast? Who cares? Right, exactly. So I have to ask, who is your favorite horror villain? Oh, that is such a hard question. Oh my gosh. I I love Freddy Krueger because he makes like funny one-liner jokes. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know. You know what I mean? I like the clever aspect of him, but I also like Pinhead in Hellraiser because that's one of the first movies that ever terrorized and like traumatized me as a child. 100% Hellraiser. I that's my favorite. I have to just put that out there. Yeah, the Hellraiser movies are terrifying, but I okay, so also Candyman. Did you watch that when you were a kid too? Of course, it scared the hell out of me. Yeah, it scared me to death. And I think the original It movie that was on TV, Pennywise, when I was a kid, watching that movie, also really scared. They, uh, I didn't watch that one until I was a little bit older. So it didn't have the same effect that it did, you know what I mean, like per se on like a young child. Because I think I was a teenager when I first watched that one. So it didn't have the same effect. It's, I could see the nostalgic in it, but I couldn't get into it per se to the point where it scared me you know what I mean yeah I think it's one of those ones if you watch it when you're like a small child it's going to traumatize you to no end because you're going to believe for one clowns are terrifying two that there's something evil lurking in the sewers and three that blood bubble like or like balloon that blows up out of the sink that just like got me when I was a kid I was like Oh my God, what is hiding in the drains? Well, there you go, folks. Definitely go check out Jules. Uh, She is an amazing content creator, but we didn't bring her here just to talk about horror. We're going to dive into the Connecticut River Valley killings and potentially the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. Obviously, disclaimer, neither one of us are professionals. We're not trying to solve the case, although 
we would like to bring light to the case to solve it. Um, but it's definitely an horrendous events that have happened in the eighties and seventies that just terrorized a community of people across, you know, many, many years. Hey, Jules, had you heard of this before this episode or what's your, what's your takes on it? Okay. So I think I heard about this like so, so many years ago. And then recently I'd listened to your episode on it, but also I listened to Jensen and Hole's episode on it too. So I got like a double duty. And then I was thinking, this sounds like the show that I watched a little while ago, like years ago, it was called Frequency. And the killer in that show was called the Nightingale Killer. And this killer killed nurses. So there were some similarities between the show, which I'm pretty sure they loosely inspired it on this killer. But it was it was really interesting. I thought it was a really well done episode because you're a great writer and you really are great at setting a tone. So you hit it out of the park as usual. But it was a chilling episode because especially when you come back to the survivor, right? Like what she experienced when she was pregnant and to survive the attack like that and knowing you're the only one that saw the face of this killer and lived to tell the tale, like it just sends chills down my spine. Right. And it's probably a mixed bag of emotions. You know, she's probably thankful to be alive, but at the same time, the trauma obviously, you know, destroyed her life, you know, for the rest of her life. That's what she, not that, that it defined her, but that's what she was known as. She was known as the Connecticut River Valley survivor. And then she, you know, probably some part of her uh, felt survivor's guilt for being the only person who did live. Like, I can't imagine the trauma. And, like, you go into this in the episode, like, how it's affected her in the years that followed what happened. Like, thankfully, she gave birth to a healthy baby. But I think the emotional impact and things like PTSD that are going to affect an individual who survives something like that because survivor's guilt is all too common when she knows the fate of all of these other women and she knows what could have befallen her and her baby I just don't think that this is something that's so easy to get over. And I really hope that, and I pray that this woman has got the psychological help that she needs because I can't imagine like how one would get, would get by this or get past this without the help of a professional to work through this, this immense amount of trauma. Oh, 100% because, you know, she, she probably went into hiding for many years. I know that's what I would do. I, I mean, I wouldn't, just the anxiety of walking out in public, looking at random strangers' faces and being like, are you the killer? Are you the killer? Like, that would just eat me alive. Oh, totally. And to fear retribution as well. Knowing that the killer knows that you are the only person that saw his face, you live to tell the tale, and wondering, well, what if they have a lineup? Like, what if there's a photo lineup? Or what if they capture the killer and... They do a lineup and, you know, the victim is left to then identify the killer. Well, maybe the killer doesn't want to take a chance with that. Maybe he wants to eliminate the only witness. So I think that one would potentially live in this abject fear of this killer coming back and finishing what he started. Oh, 100%. And you also feel, you know, not only for her, but I mean, her kids now have to live with it. The other families of all the other victims are, you know, stuck with not knowing who killed their family members. And just the brutality alone of the murders is something that, 
you know, is sadistic in nature by itself. So it's just all around. It's just a sad story to think that so many people's lives were touched by this one deprived, you know, depraved human being, you know, or human beings. Cause we really don't know if, was it one or two people? What do you, what's your thoughts on that? Then we've got the situation where Howard Minion, he's the retired sheriff, and he's got this uncle who's differently abled named Gary. And so this Gary guy, I guess, decides to confess this to Howard, and I don't really know what the motivation was there. But he basically said that they, like a group of guys got together. I don't know if their objective was to party and like end up capturing and raping a woman, but he basically confessed to killing someone. Wasn't that right? Yeah, 100%. It it was like him and his friends, they went, you know, partying, you know, out in the woods for a while. And, you know, they claimed to uh, have abducted abducted and viciously viciously butchered a woman, basically. So it's, you know, it's kind of like a boys kind of retreat. And they ended up, you know, uh, abducting a woman and butchering her basically is what he confessed to. Yeah, I mean, I personally think that this is possible that there might be one victim that is like that. But I always come back to like the Lisk killer and what a lot of, you know, criminologists and investigative experts think about Lisk. A lot of people think, well, oh, it could be more than one person. But most experts that I've heard talk about that case say it's one perpetrator with an evolving MO, right? When you look at the dumping ground, like some of these victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer are found meters from each other. And that's what really, really struck me. Like one of the victims you said was like a few meters away from the other one and discovered like a year later. And it's like this, this is an area where he dumps trophies or dumps bodies and he likes to revisit this area. To me personally, it looks like it's one perpetrator. And sure, there might be the like the one-off case that could be coincidentally just put in the area and it's somebody else. But I don't believe two killers are operating separately and then dumping the bodies there. Right. And that's that's kind of what I was thinking too. And and it's hard to get uh two serial killers together that can kill together without, you know, causing too much chaos or turmoil within amongst themselves. So I never I don't personally believe that there's more than one person either. And I tend to agree that maybe one, you know, potentially two are kind of coincidental, you know, not necessarily a copycat situation, but, you know, maybe an accident or maybe, you know, friends going off and fucking off in the woods and, you know, doing something stupid, not even stupid. That's not the right word. Doing something horrendous as abducting a woman. Um, but I, I, I genuinely tend to lean towards it being just one person and this is his safe, you know, his safe place. This is his, his sacred area where he goes and he feels comfortable. He hasn't been caught. There hasn't even been, you know, as so much as a whiff of him, you know, feeling some kind of insecurity about the spot. So I tend to agree. It's gotta be someone who knew the area 100% and knew where to go, you know, when it was snowing and, you know, the ground was covered and, you know, so it was definitely someone that had this as a safe place. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think this is somebody that had a great familiarity with the outdoors. Maybe they did a lot of camping as a child or they were a survivalist, but this is somebody who feels very comfortable in the woods, in the outdoors, that this, like you said, is his safe space. And like we see some killers where they operate in groups like the Chicago Ripper crew 
or Leonard Lake and Robert Ng. But you see this interesting power dynamic. And you know what they say about secrets, right? Like two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. I just don't. I just don't think that we would have a situation where if this was multiple offenders, that somebody over this many years wouldn't have got into a situation where one would rat on the other, right? Like they come up on other charges and they're like, hey, guess what I know? I really want to get off this charge. I want to lessen my sentence because you know relationships evolve over time and maybe the power that one potentially held over the other, if they were the more dominant personality, well, that could diminish with time as relationships change. You know, one could get married, one may move. All of these things happen and the potential that if there's a couple people involved that we still wouldn't know these secrets as so much time has passed, it just seems more unlikely and that the probability is low in my opinion. Right. And I still, I'm like, I'm baffled too that they haven't been able to, you know, by now extract some kind of evidence, you know, from you know, from the bodies or from the crime scenes or, you know, evidence that they had collected some kind of, you know, maybe DNA, maybe even potentially a fingerprint or something that in this day and age that with the technology that we have, as far as, you know, with all the different databases and everybody quote in some way or another working together, you know, it just baffles me that they haven't been able to solve it yet. Yeah, it just seems unlikely that over so many years, we've got this survivor, Jane, and then after that, we see the attacks stop in the Connecticut River Valley, right? So it's like either this perpetrator, A, died, B, is in jail, C, just decided to stop killing, his appetite was satiated, or D, he moved. Personally, I tend to believe that he moved and the DNA technology back then, obviously, (laughs) was non-existent, but they've got enough evidence preserved. It feels like even through something like GEDmatch or familial DNA that they should have been able to solve these. Like these feel like they're very solvable and that the information has to be out there somewhere. It's just that his his DNA might not have been put into the database. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, 100%. And that's, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, that they think uh, that, Israel Keys could have potentially been involved, you know, because he moved his hunting ground kind of evolved and moved throughout his killing career. And he, you know, he was sadistic and brutal in nature, just like the Connecticut River Valley killer. But which also leads me to, you know, Michael Nicolou, which he himself had PTSD to begin with. Not that PTSD excuses killing anybody, right? Um, but he's seen some horrendous shit in Vietnam. So, which leads, you know, did he, I know growing up, you know, back in the two thousands and watching young boys, you know, go to Afghanistan and Iraq and them coming back, you know, they were fucked up in the head from the shit that they saw, you know, from the war, from the killing. But it's also one of those situations where, when you're constantly in that environment where killing is the norm, where it's accepted, where all of a sudden you have to come back to civilian life, like, can you turn that off? Or does it become a situation almost like where you see yourself in wartime, even when you're back in civilian life? 
I think that's an incredibly difficult and complex question, right? Because I think each individual person, the way that they process trauma and the way that they deal with PTSD and the way they internalize the war, the combat, the conflict, all of these things and how it affects their mental health and how it affects the way they interact with the world is incredibly different. And a lot of experts believe that psychopaths are born and the sociopaths are made. So I think that a situation such as war can very much impact the way somebody interacts with the world and the way that they externalize their pain. And for some people that may involve committing acts like murder, which prior to this trauma, prior to this PTSD, they would never have done, but it becomes like a switch for them and triggers, you know, these darker aspects of them that they, people close to them may have never known existed. And I think that war is such an ugly thing. And I think that people who go and fight those wars are incredibly brave, but I don't think that we can ever overstate the impact on the mental health and even just the physical well-being on somebody's trajectory of life. I think there's some people who can thrive after dealing with situations like that and they're better at compartmentalizing and they don't internalize quite as much. But I think that it has a marked effect on every single person. Like you can't experience such darkness and such trauma and just death around you and the fear that comes with knowing that you could lose your life every single day and that the people around you could lose their lives every single day, like that will have an effect on you until the day that you die. Right. 100%. And I, I've seen it firsthand. I've had friends come back and I've had family members that have come back from war and, and it's scary. It's sad watching them fight the demons that, have come over them from, you know, from the events that they've seen from, you know, watching their friends and soldiers and, you know, basically their brother in arms just die right in front of them. And it has had a profound effect on their life there. While a lot of them keep it together and I commend the ones that are able, you know, to, to continue life and not, you know, turn into some raging asshole about it. But, you know, unfortunately, like you said, you don't know how it's going to affect people. And, and something that might affect you one way isn't going to affect me the same way. And that's what's hard with, you know, PTSD and, you know, the, the spoils of war, I guess, as you say. There's so many different variables that combine to kind of give you all of these different outcomes. And what two people will experience, it will manifest in such different ways. And we like to think that, oh, well, there's the VA that helps soldiers. Well, in my experience, speaking to friends who've served in the military for the U.S., who've seen combat, the VA is something that isn't necessarily as good as people think that it should be because oftentimes they'll just pump you full of drugs, right? Be like, this is going to solve the problem. There isn't a lot of talking through the issues. And still there's a lot of shame attached to, to seeking help for mental health issues so that soldiers often go undiagnosed and untreated because they don't want to be seen as like seeing a quote unquote shrink or something like that. And so I think it's almost like wolf, woefully ill-prepared to deal with, sure, they can deal with the physical stuff, but the mental health things, this isn't something that goes away in one year, two year, three years. You need to be treating these soldiers for life. I don't care if they saw just one day of combat or they were just in training. It can have a it can have a very serious effect on their mental health. And this is something that can be incredibly impactful for the remainder of their lives. So I think it needs to be addressed fully. And I don't think that they should ever be pushed out like, hey, you only served, you know, 
or you didn't serve long enough in the military. You left for this reason. Therefore, you aren't entitled to, you know, care at the VA. I think that there needs to just be a blanket across the board. If anyone has ever served for any amount of time, you need to be addressing their mental and physical well-being for the rest of their lives because they fought for their country and they deserve that. Oh, 100%. And you'd be a great advocate, Jules. Let's do it. Let's go. Av- let's start an advocate podcast now. <laughs> Yell it from the rooftops. They're like, you're Canadian. You don't get to have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? That makes you the nicest person in the world because you are Canadian. <laughs> it's true. Us Canadians are typically pretty nice. We do have that reputation and it is usually true. So do you think that maybe, you know, being that Nicolou did serve in the Vietnam War, which everybody knows that that war in itself was just disgusting in itself. Um, Not the soldiers, but, you know, just what they saw and what happened in the war. Um, Do you think maybe that affected to potentially bring him in as a suspect and, you know, as his life progressed, you know, and eventually killing, you know, his girlfriend or his second wife and her daughter? Like that's, you know, how do you not, how do you rule him out as a suspect? In my opinion, he's got to be number one, right? Okay. Uh, Delbert Tallman, I think is way too disorganized to have been the person who's responsible for this and to rem- to evade capture and to go unnoticed. The only one person saw his face in the situation, if it was him, I don't believe he's a suspect. So Michael Nicolou, I think he could be a good suspect. I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I don't really love any of these suspects. I mean, yes, he did eventually end up killing his girlfriend and her daughter, but I think that's a lot different than going out and hunting. Do you know what I mean? Like that's killing somebody close to you. That's like an explosion of rage. Somebody who goes and hunts, that's like being in beast mode, premeditating. To me, it says like it's two different offenders. I mean, it's possible that it could be him. But I just have a feeling we don't have the actual perpetrator's name. But that's just my own gut feeling on this. Right. And that's kind of, you know, what I was thinking also. Uh, not that I'm just going to agree with you, but, you know, just going through the evidence and, and, and seeing the facts of the case and stuff is it's going to take somebody of, you know, like uh, somebody who, like you said, who's organized, who can resist the urge of killing until it's the right time, until it's, you know, it definitely takes somebody who has, you know, restraint to an extent that they're able to commit their crime and get away with it and continue getting away with it. Not, like you said, an explosive rage episode. You know what I mean? Yeah, that says just two different types of killers to me. Like a rage killer is very different than this organized killer who's almost like cold and calculated and they're willing to just like sit in the shadows and wait for the right moment to strike. It just says a different type of offender. And of course we could be wrong here, but that's just what my gut's telling me that Nicolou, although he obviously has his issues and we know that he is indeed a murderer, I just don't think he's good for these killings. Right. And which, you know, which makes me, which leads me to believe this, did this person move and eventually get caught for something else and just hasn't confessed? Which is crazy because after all these years, like most serial killers or, you know, people who are, are you know, organized like that, eventually they want that recognition. They crave that, you know, that notoriety of like, yeah, I'm this guy who did that, you know? 
where has that been, you know, or is it somebody like the Golden State Killer who kind of disappeared into the shadows for many years and then got caught in later years? You know, is that something that could potentially happen? I think that's an incredible misconception that all killers want that notoriety because you're operating, and I think most people, when they think that, are operating under the presupposition that we have all the data. We're only going off the killers that have been caught. So our statistics and our information that we have is inherently flawed. So there could be the vast majority of serial killers that aren't caught because they don't want that recognition. Therefore, we only catch the ones that slip up because they need to communicate with law enforcement, because they need to be seen as the smartest guy in the room. So I don't necessarily think that's true. I think of the serial killers that have been caught, yes, that's representative of that serial killer population, but of the broader population and those that remain unsolved, I think they remain unsolved because they're people like Israel Keys. They don't want that recognition. They're willing to they're willing to complete suicide or end their own lives before they get caught and have their secrets get out there. So I think this is probably one of those individuals that personally like my thoughts are this guy's cold and calculated enough to go, okay, I'm going to recalibrate. This didn't work. Someone saw my face. It's time to find a new hunting ground. It's time to find a new territory. I think that he got up, he moved, he must've had a job where he could be mobile. Maybe he worked for the forestry service. Maybe he did something relating to that because he had a great familiarity with the forest, or maybe he just spent a lot of time there when he was a kid. It's so tough to know. But I think he moved to a different state. Maybe he evolved with his MO. Maybe he changed his victimology. Maybe he was like, okay, well, these victims are, they're technically lower risk victims, although they were engaged in high risk behavior, like hitchhiking, a lot of them, but that was because of the time, but they weren't drug, they weren't drug addicts. They weren't sex workers. So they were technically higher risk victims. So if he then was like, okay, well, people are caring too much about these victims. What if I went and picked more invisible victims, right? You go and pick those drug addicts and those sex workers off the street and people just don't notice in the same kind of way. So he would have just remained undetected and just completely changed his victimology. Speaking on his victimology, I mean, his, you know, part of his MO at this time was nurses. You know, is that a coincidence or do you, you know, is it potentially somebody who has been, you know, institutionalized at many different institutions within the area and he's had access to, you know, hundreds of different doctors and nurses throughout, you know, throughout the years. And that's why he's picking these people or, do they, did they have a, maybe have a certain look at that time where he could look at somebody and be like, Hey, you're a nurse, you know? Cause that was something that I felt coincident was, was just too big of a coincidence to, you know, not, you know, not talk about it because majority of his victims were nurses. Okay. So you look at somebody like Kemper, right? And he was killing as a proxy for his mother. And once he killed his mother, he just stopped killing. So, Either, I think there's a few options here. Either, like, say his mother or his sister or somebody close to him while he was growing up during those formative years was a nurse. And maybe they were abusive in some way, controlling. Or you've got a situation where he may work in a hospital. And so he then has developed this fascination or obsession maybe with one nurse. And then maybe she was his first victim. And then he just continued to kill using these others as a proxy, trying to recreate the feelings from his initial kill. 
Or you have a situation like you mentioned, where maybe he's just spent a lot of time being institutionalized or being in these hospitals. It's just so hard to know what exactly kind of sparked this interest in nurses. Is it somebody that he had a connection with? Is it just that he was exposed to plenty of nurses, either through a job or being in hospitals? It's so hard to know, but I don't think it's a coincidence. But I do find it weird that like, okay, I want to know your thoughts on this. So we know that some of the victims were hitchhikers, right? Like quite a few of them were hitchhikers and they were nurses or nurses aides. And so did this guy just pick up hitchhikers all the time and then just choose to kill the ones that were nurses or nurses aides? What do you think? I mean, that's a very valid question, right? Because you get you get to make in small talk and, and it's crazy to think like on a, on a little tangent off your question, but it's crazy to think now, right? In 2021 that, uh, we look at hitchhiking like it's scary. It's a form of, oh my God, how could you do that, right? Because that's what we're taught now. That's the way, that's the culture is you don't know who you're getting into a car with anymore, which is crazy because now we have Uber and Lyft and all these other you know apps where you get in cars with strangers, you're just not sticking your thumb out, right? Um, and we have this, not necessarily a false sense of security, but a sense of security that everybody's been vetted one way or another and you're not getting in the car with the serial killer. But back in, you know, back in these times, even when I was a kid, it, hitchhiking was still a thing, but it was starting, you know, to become taboo, I guess, in a sense, because it was scary. You know, you didn't know who you were getting in a car with and so on and so forth. But back in the day, you, you, that was their mode of transportation. If you wanted to get somewhere and you didn't have a car, you stuck out your thumb and you got in the car with somebody. And then at that point, you're not going to get in the car and just stay silent sitting next to somebody for however long the ride is. So potentially, yes. I mean, you make small talk. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a nurse. Da, 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 da. And then at that point, does it trigger something in his head? And he's like, oh, hell yeah. Like this is, this is my time, you know? And and then at that point, they're not hitchhiking within cities. They're hitchhiking out in rural, rural areas trying to get somewhere else. It then becomes a crime of opportunity because they're already out in the middle of nowhere. They have, you know, it's not like there's tons of people around watching and waiting or, or driving by or doing that, those things. So now it just becomes you know, opportunity to be like, oh, yep, you're a nurse. I hate you already because you're a nurse, bam, you know, and then that's it. I 100% agree with you on that, which makes me think, okay, this guy, the in all probability, has picked up many more women than he's actually murdered, but he's murdered only nurses. And then and nurses' aides, women in healthcare, because I think what are the, the probability is so low that he just randomly pick up all nurses. Like that didn't happen. You know what I mean? Right. It's like almost mathematically impossible. It, it is. I think we could pretty much safely say it is mathematically impossible that this guy just literally happens upon a nurse every time someone sticks their thumb out. Like they're not wearing nurses' uniforms. That just didn't happen. But then we need to ask if that's how he's selecting his victims. It's likely not through a hospital. So what was the experience that he had either earlier in life or in adulthood with a specific nurse, most likely, that triggered this, like, which makes me wonder, is there a family member that's a nurse? Is there something that is traumatic that's tied to nurses? What is this fascination, you know? Oh, 100%. And it was probably either his mother or maybe his grandmother, um, you know, somewhere like that, or 
who knows, like maybe even a nurse that, you know, his of a doctor that he was taken to as a child who was abusive. Uh, abuse back in the days, they it wasn't reported on or, you know, shown in the same light that it is now to where it was more or less, you know, if you were abused, you just didn't talk about it, whether you were, especially if you were a male, you know, if you were abused, you didn't talk about it. And, you know, same with women, you know, it was just something that wasn't talked about. And if a professional such as like um, a doctor or a nurse was abusing you, the last thing you're going to do is try to accuse them. Nobody's going to believe you. There was shame and victim shaming and, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, it's one of those situations like, you know, more than likely it was somebody who uh, the killer spent great amount of times with, whether it be grandmother, mother, aunt, you know, potentially an older sister, somewhere like that. And, you know, they were, you know, it was either sexual by nature or just being just abusive, you know? And so it's kind of one of those things, you know, who, because they say, you know, when serial killers are for, you know, when you're in your formative years, you know, a lot of your surroundings are what determines that. And that brings up the, you know, nature versus nurture question. But, you know, was it something to where he just hated nurses because, you know, his sister was kicking the shit out of him or his mom or, you know what I mean? Who knows? Like, we don't know which aspect it was to cause him to hate nurses, you know? Yeah, and it could be something so simple as his mother was a nurse and there was some kind of maternal deprivation. Maybe she wasn't a very maternal person. Maybe she was always gone when he was a young child because she had to go back to work to support the family. And we know that certain things like maternal deprivation can impact a child in, or can be incredibly impactful on a child into their adult years, right? Like even if it's being left for like a week or two when you're a baby, these things affect you as an adult. So I'm more inclined to believe that whoever it was, if it, if this is indeed the scenario, and obviously we're wildly speculating here, but I'm more inclined to believe it was a motherly figure. So if it was a grandmother or an aunt, it was whomever was looking after him or looking over him because the mother can have such an effect. Somebody who's got access, I'm, it could be a sister, it could be whomever. Maybe if the mother wasn't present, the sister was looking after him. I'm just my brain keeps going to mother or maybe if the grandmother had the role of mother and the mother wasn't present and maybe she was incredibly strict or abusive in some way or just not present. There's so many different things as you talked or you touched on nature versus nurture, right? You've got somebody who could be internalizing this treatment or taking the fact that his mother's always gone as this like testament to like, he's not worthy of spending time with where you got another child who would interpret the same situation and go, mom's providing for us. She has to go to work. You know what I mean? 100%. And that's, you know, another thing is the, if it was a parental role, whether it be, you know, mother, grandmother, aunt, something like that, the, the dynamic was different back then. Right. So it would be, we'll just say potentially that this person was killing, you know, in their twenties or so. And this was in the 70s and 80s. So that would put them growing up through the 50s and 60s, right? So it was a different dynamic. The family arrangement was different. The The way that, that you handled situations was different. Smacking your kids around wasn't shunned upon. You know what I mean? It wasn't, or demeaning your children, even though 
later years and throughout the years, we found that that has psychological, you know, ramifications throughout one's life, whether it be from childhood to adulthood, at some point it's going to affect them. Uh, you know, it was different back then and the older generations had it even harder, you know, as the generations have gone on through the years, we've become more and more self-aware to our actions and how it affects our children and how it affects them as an adult and, and so on and so forth throughout their life. Um, so it's definitely one of those situations where, you know, did the signs of the time affect him, you know, to the point that he just hated fucking life because there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of that generation that came out with, you know, alcohol and drug, pro you know, drug problems and, and so on and so forth that because they internalized everything and internalized all their feelings and abuse and everything that happened to them throughout their childhood, that talking about it wasn't something that they did. And so they had to find an outlet somehow. No, I think that's a brilliant observation, right? You can't look at a case like this without profiling the time period and the culture that surrounds it. And we don't know anything about this offender. Like, for example, this is somebody who could have, you know, served in the Vietnam War and could just be a name we don't know. They come back and rather than focusing on their feelings that are associated with the trauma that they experienced, they then externalize that trauma in a different way. And they choose, you know, to then revisit another situation that was potentially traumatic involving their mother, who was a nurse, which again, we're speculating. And I just want to make clear, even if that is the case, I'm in no way blaming the mother for the actions made by an adult male. And I know Kevin isn't either, but it's, but it's just trying to understand what would ever make this individual behave in this capacity and how he could have the ability to not be caught and what his fascination was with nurses. That's just the one thing about the case that really, it really spooked me. And I mean, but can you imagine like somebody like this really reminds me of, I just covered this case uh, with Robin and Ashley. We did it for a Patreon mini episode. And a lot of people will remember this as one of the most terrifying unsolved mystery segments. And it's on the case of Angela Hammond. And it reminded me so much of this. Like she was on a payphone talking to her boyfriend and this dirty looking guy kind of comes up and she, they have this conversation about the payphone and she tells her boyfriend about this guy. And then he comes up behind her and all she hears him like say, like, and the boyfriend can hear it too, is I never had to use the phone and he kidnaps her. And it reminds me of that. Like he just pulls her through the window. He obviously isn't interested in the payphone. He just yanks her out and he's dead set on ending her life. And she was, what, seven months pregnant. She was visibly pregnant. And I think a lot of offenders, in seeing that her stomach was swollen, she's pregnant, they would stop because it's one thing to murder a woman, but it's a whole other thing to murder a woman who is that far along in her pregnancy, don't you think? Oh, 100%. Like, I don't know how, I mean, I, I don't know how people kill to begin with, right? But how you could you know, I guess there's that, what is that, honor amongst thieves kind of thing, you know, where if you're killing people, like, you kind of got to, like, draw a line in the sand, I guess, right? Like, and pregnant women should definitely be one of those things that are kind of just off limits no matter what. Yeah, I don't think that would be looked upon too kindly. It's sort of like that hierarchy of scum, right? Where they basically have this way in the jails. It's like basically how they do it in the jails. And I'm not talking about how I view people, but it's the way that it's the way that people are kind of rated in jail. And it's like pedophiles are the worst. 
And then you've got rapists, right? And if you do anything with little kids, you hurt little kids or you hurt animals, you know, you're on the basically like the hit list, right? You're going to be harassed. You're in your may need to be in protective custody. So I would think that doing something like that to a woman that's seven months pregnant would be looked upon as being an incredibly depraved act, even by other murderers. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's pretty abhorrent. 100% (laughs) Jules. I agree. Like it's, it's definitely one of those situations. So as we've been sitting here talking, I obviously we are in no way, shape or form going to solve this question, but I'd like to know your thoughts on it. What's your thoughts on nature versus nurture? Like, do you think a serial killer is born or do you think a serial killer is made? I think it really depends upon the serial killer. I think that there's so many different studies that could show you that both things have an incredible impact. And I think that that's the intersection of nature and nurture that somehow molds the individual to becoming what they are. Because each individual, if they're born with a propensity or they're born with, you know, showing signs of psychopathy, even though children aren't diagnosed as being psychopaths, we've seen plenty of different children who exhibit certain signs of psychopathy, and that continues well into adulthood. Other children can exhibit signs of psychopathy, and it's simply just an undeveloped, like an underdeveloped brain. They haven't matured enough to exhibit empathy yet, and they grow out of that. So that's why diagnosing children is a problem. But with nature versus nurture, you see, so twin different twin studies proves that you can see incredible commonalities, even when people with the same genetics are separated by great distances. So that shows you that genetics do play a huge role. But I think that the environment that somebody's in, you could argue that that might play an even bigger role in the crafting of a killer. I think one can definitely be, one can be born. You see certain situations where no matter how good the family is, no matter how much that child is nurtured, they see themselves as a victim early on. They see everyone as being out to get them. And due to their affect, their disposition, their, you know, mental health difficulties and, you know, just inherent issues that they have, you know, they may end up to inevitably inevitably become that killer. But I, I really hate to use the word inevitably because I think there's choices all along the way. And, you know, there's been studies that there's plenty of people who could be classified as psychopaths, who are lawyers, who are CEOs, who use those things that might not be, they might not be looked at as favorable traits in a relationship with another human being. But when it comes to running a company, it can be incredibly cutthroat and you can make those impulsive decisions. You can think on your feet and it can be incredibly lucrative and having people fear you can be something that can be, I guess, to the benefit of people in those positions. So to become a killer, I think it's a choice. I don't think that it's ever an inevitable thing, but I think it's the intersection of nature and nurture. I don't think you can ever say it's 100% one or the other, but I do think that somebody who can have a normal, you know, if you look at their brain scans or you look at their, you know, genetics, you look at their, their mothers, their fathers, you look at their, you know, lineage, you don't see any mental health difficulties, but if you put them in an incredibly traumatic upbringing, and childhood, you can definitely mold them into being the person with a propensity to act out in ways like that. Especially when you see certain situations like the merging of sex and violence at a young age, 
whether that's looking at bondage photographs or say watching um, their mother have sex with an individual and there's pain involved, that becomes a huge problem. And you see that in the molding of sexual sadists and murders, murderers that are involved in sexual sadisms, that like intermingling of sex and violence at a young age, it's incredibly unhealthy on the psyche of a child. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, something that you touched on and um, was, you know, not being able to diagnose children. And I understand that it's hard because children are still forming and their actions are still forming. Um, but in my life, I, you know, I've been around children and, and, you know, nieces and nephews and friends' kids and, and uh, so on and so forth. And it's, it's crazy. And I like, it's hard to believe, but like you see, like I've seen a child uh, sociopath and it's incredibly sad. Like, I don't like, I don't know how else to describe it, but you just don't see that emotion behind their eyes. You know, that twinkle that a, a child that a normal child has is to where you just see like, almost like a dead zone, you know, as to where, where you should see soul in life. And this is somebody, you know, a child that's had, you know, a decent upbringing who has parents who love her, you know, and so on and so forth, um, that she just, you know, she kicks her brothers or she beats her brothers for no reason whatsoever. Um, you know, can't, you know, concentrate in school, can't, you know, so on, which I know obviously concentration has nothing to do with that, but she's just made, you know, really bad decisions as a child, but it's the lack of empathy towards the people that she hurts. You know, I mean, she's tried pushing her brothers downstairs and so on and so forth. And that is like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe seeing something like that because it's just, it's, it's crazy to watch something like that happen, you know? Yeah, it's true. And there was like, um, one of the individuals that I knew growing up, growing up was like that as well. Um, it ended up that he wasn't diagnosed with having ADHD and he was struggling with his sexuality, but it was also the same thing where he exhibited almost signs of like psychopathy or sociopathy. But as he grew older and he grew into himself and gained that acceptance, it wasn't that he was that. It was that he was acting out because he was having this internal struggle. So we also need to ask in a situation like that, like this girl, she may have had this great upbringing from, you know, all, all accounts, but there could be something that could underscore why her behavior is the way that it is. Maybe she takes an, I'm obviously have no idea totally speculating but, right yeah totally speculating but maybe she takes gymnastics or maybe she takes swimming maybe she had somebody ab abuse her or touch her in the wrong way or treat her a certain way that could account for that but then again maybe nothing happened and that's just her personality and i think we've all seen children like that and it can be pretty terrifying and like empathy isn't fully developed at that age but still we learn that you don't do that to the people that you love so when you see how old is she uh, 10 years old, I think now 11 or 12 now. And this has been, this has been an ongoing problem for years and they've, they've taken her to psychiatrists and, and, uh, uh, counselors and they've tried to put her on medication and like, it still doesn't like affect her behavior. You know what I mean? 
oh, that's really difficult, right? And then you get all those right. like buzzword diagnosis, like right. you know, like oh, does she is she ADHD? Does she have oppositional defiance disorder? All of these sorts of things. Is she you know? dealing with any of these and you've got all these different psychiatrists and mental health professionals who are doing their very best and they're trying to weigh in and offer up a solution, trying to prescribe medications that are going to work. And I can't imagine how exasperating that must be for her entire family because they're doing everything that they can and they're trying to address it. And if she is or has experienced some kind of trauma, they want to get to the heart of it. But if she hasn't, it's even harder because there's nothing to get to the heart of. Right. And that's, you know, and that's where you go back to that nature versus nurture. It's was she born that way? Or like you said, did something happen along the way to cause these behaviors to manifest themselves? Because we can see that with victims of sexual abuse where they can act out, they can be distracted in school, they can appear as though they display less empathy because they may become abusive to other people because they felt so powerless in a situation like that, that they then try to dominate others. And that, of course, isn't an across-the-board thing, but it definitely does happen. And I'm not saying she was sexually abused, but there could just be some kind of hidden variable of a traumatic situation that we're just unaware of that caused that. And unless we know all of those facts, we're then just interpreting it going, well, she was born that way, when it very well could have been a combination of she had the propensity towards those sorts of behaviors, and then a situation triggered it, and then she just became more of that type of a individual. And I guess she always had the possibility of becoming, but yeah, it's just so hard with kids, right? And that's why psychiatrists or psychologists or any diagnostician doesn't like to diagnose kids with psychopathy or sociopathy, right? Because children's brains aren't finished developing. Our brains aren't finished developing till we're 25. Right. And even at 25, you're still, you know, that's why it, it baffles me on, an, on just a small little tangent is that in most countries, the legal age, you become an adult, quote unquote, at 18 years old. And while I'm not an expert and I don't know what age the legal age should be, but 18 years old is, in my opinion, I don't believe the right age because you are so mentally unstable at 18 years old. Like, I, at least I know I was. You know, I was all over the place. Your emotions are all over the place. Your hormones are all over the place. Like, it's kind of, I don't know, it's just crazy that, that you, you be, become defined as an adult at 18 years old. I know. It kind of boggles my mind, too. Like, I, I don't know what the right answer is. And I'm not an expert on it either. I do have a PhD in transpersonal counseling, but I'm not a psychologist, so I cannot tell you what is the right answer. 18 seems crazy. Seems like to be able to vote at 18, but then you can't drink till you're 21 in the US. That sounds crazy to me. It's like you're going to let somebody vote on how the country should be run, but you're not going to let them have a drink of alcohol. That seems And you're going you're going to also let them go die for your country, too at 18 years old. But like you said, you can't get a drink until you're 21. I, I think if you're going to be able to make a choice such as that, actually, I, I can't, I can't have an opinion on that because, you know, so many people it's changed their lives for the better. And the fact that they've had access to education and the ability to do those things, but in, you know, this ideal world where somebody would have more power of consent, I would think at the age of 21, you've matured more, you've seen more, you're not fresh out of high school. But I understand why it needs to be 18, because people who 
would maybe want to be going into university are going to go straight into the army and then they get their four years paid for, right? So I understand why a lot of people do it. It opens up opportunities that they wouldn't normally have. And I think for that, it's such a wonderful thing. But I think there's many problematic elements as well. Right. Well, Dr. Jules, on that note, I appreciate you coming on. I'm so glad we got to sit down and talk about this. Uh, any final thoughts, any final words, anything that we didn't talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered the main aspects of the case. Like It's pretty confounding because there's so many different victims who are associated with this. And if we went through person by person, I think we would be here for like four hours. I got four hours to kill, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> uh, but thanks again for coming on. Why don't you plug your shows again, where they can find you at, all your social medias, that kind of good stuff. Okay, so you can find both my shows anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And Got the Path Went Chili with Robin Warder and Dr. Ashley Wellman, who's a criminologist. And it's an offshoot of The Trail Went Cold, where we discuss cases that Robin's already covered. And it's lots of fun. And on Twitter, we're at PathWent. And Riddle Me That is my solo podcast where I focus on unsolved cases and disappearances. So, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Podcast Riddle. And if you want to email me for either show, you can email me at RiddleMeThatPod at gmail.com. And yeah. Now, Jules, I, I'm sure you've listened and I'm sure you've heard asked a hundred times but I have to ask you one question. Do you mind answering? Sure. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? Oh my God, a pickle. Because I pickle? love pickles. Pickles are tangy. They're delicious. They're not calorically dense. So yeah. And they've got a lovely green hue. Yeah, I'm a, a pickle. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Any particular pickle or dill. just a pickle? Oh, dill. dill. 100% dill. No other pickle. Well, there you go, ladies and gents. Jules is a pickle. Are you pickle rich? <laughs> so, but thanks again, Jules, for coming on. I appreciate it. As for everyone else, thanks for joining us. Make sure you go check out Jules on Riddle Me That, uh, The Path Went Chilly, and soon to be We Come at Night. So I'm really excited to see what you guys are coming up with on that. And again, thanks for coming on, Jules. You're so welcome, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really glad we got to have this chat. Absolutely. I hope you have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. <laughs>